Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a food patriot to the natural world, and a knower in the power of eco-agriculture to create abundance. And on today's show, we're going to be starting with a trivia question. How did the World War II draft help launch the regenerative movement? And so um, this trivia question, um, we're right now is going to be joined with the executive director of Acres. Um, also, he is with, uh, he's founding a new group called Think Regeneration, Ryan Slaybog. Hi, welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me today. Um, yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm the, uh, for the last six years, I've been the uh, executive director of Acres USA, which we teach soil health uh, to farmers and ranchers around the world. Uh, we do a little bit more than that. Uh, we connect it up between soil health and human health as well for them and really give them the why so that they can go uh, work within our community to figure out the how. Um, uh, we are uh, fully into the regenerative movement now, but have been around for 51 years and been talking about this for a long time. So we're really excited to uh, feel and hear and sense all the uh, interest in, in what we're talking about and doing these days. I'm, I'm really looking forward to taking the deep dive with you and uh, Lydia later on. Lydia will be joining us also from Acres later on in the show. But one of the things that you put out on LinkedIn this week is this um, video of, um, of uh, tell, tell us a little about the uh, video that answers this trivia question. How did World War II help uh, draft, help launch the regeneration, regenerative movement? Well, the, uh, it'll take me just about 30 seconds. I'll try to give you the, the short version here. But there was a scientist named Dr. William A. Albrecht who was studying at the University of Missouri, and he got his hands on uh, the draft records for, peop- uh, for the draftees of World War II. And when he started to analyze who was rejected for the draft for health reasons, uh, specifically uh, dental issues, uh, he started to line that up with um, the nutrient deposits across the U.S. and soil testing that had been done uh, in the decade previous. And what he found was that the uh, land that had been farmed for centuries on the East Coast uh, had far more health issues linked to it than the, the less farmed land, say in western Kansas, where there were almost no cavities. And so he uh, uh, put out a research paper uh, linking and correlating the two, which uh, caused a big stir. It was quite controversial at the time because this was in 1948 when he put this paper out, and this was about the time the U.S. was really going all in on uh, protecting our big industry. And so he was challenging uh, where our agriculture uh, investments were going at the time with that research. Uh, he did a lot of other research around that, but uh, um, really was linking the ability for to, to turn calcium into proteins. Well, and I'm going to play a clip. There's a 30-minute um, documentary, so I'm going to uh, – uh, we can play that clip right now, and um, I'll also have this uh, the entire documentary posted on the show notes for this podcast. But let's play this uh, – a little bit of the this clip. Some of our soil has lost much of its fertility. Our irreplaceable topsoil has grown dangerously thin, but still we're not too late for corrective action provided that corrective action comes soon. That action must include the replacements of the minerals we've mined out of our soil. In short, fertilization. We must determine for each portion of the land exactly what minerals are lacking and then apply these elements to the soil in the right amounts. This is the way to restore fertility to the soil to combat erosion, to safeguard our most precious natural resource, the topsoil. As a matter of simple economics, our course is clear. The initial investment in soil treatment pays almost immediate returns. Many crops fully repay fertilizing costs the first year through improved yield and quality. But more important, soil treatment now is an investment in the soil's lasting strength and stability. Remember the cattle who grazed only one side of a pasture? Instinctively, they sought the grass that was rich in minerals, the food that grew on soil that supplied these minerals. To us, both sides of a pasture may look the same, but animals know the difference. 
animals know the difference. And um, that the fact that animals know the difference between eating food from healthy soil and non-healthy soil is is something that's emerging scientific understanding. Now, I want to I want to say again that this video that you just heard the the a little clip from was produced seventy years ago. So, um, Ryan, put this show put some of the stuff he says in context for us. Um, ha- well, and I, I guess my big question is: Did American agriculture listen to him? Um, um, not everybody. No, not as many people that should, that should have. I think would be the short answer. Uh, his his research was really kind of put on the on the weight on the on the back burner for many years, and that's not why Acres USA was formed. Actually, our, the company I <clears throat> we currently uh, is the official publisher of William Albrecht's research papers, and a guy named Charles Walters, who started our company, was one of his last students at the University of Missouri, and decided to uh, that this really needed to get widespread uh, coverage and to be shown to the world. So that was literally the basis of Acres USA um, overall, but. Uh, the context then was what he was seeing in the field was the people who were growing, the farmers and ranchers who were growing livestock on the East Coast were not able to raise as healthy of uh, cattle, so they were moving west, and uh, they were following what he liked to call um, a soft wheat and uh, what they had been growing with hard wheat, and that's really, um, you know, it, 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 it's hard to digest on the cattle, and it doesn't have as many nutrients, and so, and it takes a lot more inputs to grow, and so... Uh, he was observing that and then trying to figure out how that was going to affect human health all at the same time. If it was affecting the livestock, then it had to be doing something to us, too. And so in the last 70 years um, since this work, what has happened with American soil, the, our, our topsoil? Well, uh, you know, in 1962, uh, the Center for Economic Development created a panel uh, that recommended that we go into an adaptive ag program. And at the time, we had still had some protections on our soil and some protections on family farmers. Uh, what they stated, and by they, I mean, uh, these are chairmen of large companies like Standard Oil, Ford Motor Company. These are not farmers and ranchers deciding this, uh, that we needed to industrialize our ag system to compete. And they just felt like if we could continue to scale up, that we would be able to drive the price down to the world, become a world leader, and, uh, and have food for everybody. And we just know that didn't happen. Um, they literally wanted to displace 500,000 family farmers in three years in the mid-60s um, through scholarship programs, moving them to industry, moving them into the cities. Uh, that did happen. Um, but the so say that number again. I mean, I guess I wasn't, I wasn't aware of that particular uh, fact. So 500,000 farmers in the United States was di- dis- were displaced in the 1960s because of the philosophy of basically get big or get out? Yeah, very, very neat. Few people know that, that they actually, you know, these are future farmers. So they went out, they realized that it was going to be hard to get the people who owned the land and managed the land off, but they went to high schools and they talked about how farming and ranching was not going to be a good future and that the future was in uh, oil and gas and cars and um, technology and, and these things. And they uh, actually handed out scholarships to go to university to get degrees so that they could go work for these companies. And uh, it worked like a charm. Uh, today we have about 5 billion more people. Um, living in um, uh, rural America than we do did uh, then, and we have almost twice the population overall. So it, it, this has been you know, a real societal design to, uh, to move people out of the country into the city, and that was targeted on farmers and ranchers. And you can imagine the poorer the farmer and the rancher was, the easier the target they were. Well, and I know this might seem like a jump, but um, I, my mother just talks so lovingly of the streetcars here in Minneapolis. And so the same people that were like telling people to get off the farms were the same people that were dismantling, dismantling the streetcar system in, in Minneapolis. Do, do, do you think I have that right? It's the same philosophy, if you will. Absolutely. It was, just, it, was, it was the same mindset. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good way to put it, that the mindset was we – we need less people doing a lot more, and that just really created the serfdom environment of agriculture that, um, you know, really discouraged young people to get in. They just didn't see opportunities there anymore. It was grunt labor or nothing um, in agriculture. So, you know, we have a, a, a clear roadmap of how to get back to where we were because of how clearly they designed this program overall. So it, it doesn't take a rocket science to look at what they did and, and see how it you know, created a, a country that has the highest disease rate per capita in the world. 
Yeah, and I, I like that word, the serfdom of of agriculture. And um, I also want to jump you. You're doing something now called Think, think Regeneration. So um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, and I appreciate the chance to do that. Uh, uh, and I really have to thank everybody at Acres USA for their support and allowing me to jump off and do this. Um, the, uh, the idea is to create a think tank um, to rewrite that policy that was rewritten in the 1960s. Having great conversations with uh, farmers and ranchers in the regenerative space uh, who are interested in being empowered to do this. Uh, this is not going to be written by industry. This is going to be written by um, our greatest farmers and ranchers who are in the regenerative space and understand how it works and understand how we can get um, a better food supply in the long run. Um, we're also going to have some leadership empowerment for farmers and ranchers and work with them to make sure that they can all talk about the need for change clearly and demonstrate to their teams on their farm how to uh, create change overall. We know that the volume of change needed um, happening in the next century is going to be uh, equal or greater to the to the work that was done the last 70 years to get us here. So uh, we really feel like we, we have to empower farmers and ranchers to get us there. Uh, one of the symptoms is we don't see farmers and ranchers anywhere in Fortune 100 board of directors, right? Yet these are some of the most talented, smart, innovative uh, people on the planet, and uh, they just aren't given a chance to, to speak loudly enough. Well, and one thing you say on that website for Think Regeneration is this isn't training. This is empowerment. And compared to sort of a serfdom, I mean, this is name, I've named the show Food Freedom Radio, and it's about how we have that agency over the fundamental thing of how to eat. Now, we're, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back. I'm going to go back to that video video and, um, and and talk about how animals know the difference. Animals know the difference in human soil. What if humans were also animals? You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a person who believes in the power of eco-agriculture to create abundance. And with me right now is Ryan um, Slabog. Um, he's with Acres USA. Also, he is with thinkregeneration.com. And um, tell us a little bit more about your background and why you come to this work. That's a good question. It's a little uh, uh, winding road, but I uh, grew up in Kansas and Iowa, uh, surrounded my grandparents were chicken farmers and didn't, didn't, couldn't quite make it with the uh, industry coming in. So they ended up becoming, uh, they were lovely people, hardworking folks, and became uh, janitors in the school district. But um, so I, was, I was exposed to kind of the, the challenges of family farmers overall early on. Uh, my definition of family farming was you sweep chicken poop, and so I didn't really have any desire to do this um, a whole lot until uh, a long time later. Uh, I started as a cub reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, um, reporting on cops and courts. I got into the newspaper industry. I started working in communities that were in um, environmentally sensitive areas as, as a newspaper editor and just saw how hard those communities worked to keep those communities um, and to keep the wilderness areas protected and to keep their, their backyards protected. And uh, I got a chance to uh, get back into agriculture in about 2012 and then 2016 uh, acres called, and that was a chance of a lifetime to uh, you know, match both worlds, the conservation mindset with uh, our food supply and our agriculture. And I love working with farmers and ranchers. So it's been just a wonderful uh, a journey to be here today. And I think the timing is right to uh, um, get us all on board for what we're talking about. And so um, you put on, on LinkedIn um, this week, this question is, how did, a, how did the World War II draft help launch the regenerative movement? And you also linked this fascinating 30-minute um, documentary produced about 70 years ago. And the documentary was talking about how the soil is being depleted and the impacts of that mineral depletion on human and animal health. Um, and it, it talked also about, um, it used this phrase, animals know the difference. Um, and how would so talk, and of course humans are animals in case anyone wondered but how do we know how does the the health of the soil affect human health? It's a good question um, and there's a lot of research going into that um, you know the the animal behavior was you know studied by Albrecht early on um, it's been carried on by uh, folks like uh, Dr. Fred Provenza um, who's still doing this research today and his team. Uh, and they, you know, they will put nutrient dense hay bales out in the field and they'll put monoculture, single nutrient hay bales in the field. And the animals will 
will choose. And they've just seen this over and over and over and over again that um, if given a choice, the animals will choose the right balanced diet for themselves uh, to feed themselves. Uh, humans are the same. The problem is when we get exposed, and animals are the same way too, when we get exposed to a candy bar or a pizza, the sugar ratio and the feedback, the, the flavor feedback ratio is off the charts. And it's just not something that we normally get exposed to in the natural kingdom. And once we get uh, exposed to that, there's really no going back. So that's why a bear, once a bear finds a dumpster, they can't just go back and pick berries off a tree because they're literally addicted to that flavor feedback loop energy feedback loop that they get from uh, more processed foods and more sugary foods. And so uh, that's, you know, generally uh, where choice comes into the matter, how we grow our food. I think uh, you and I were talking off air about Ann Bickley's and uh, David Montgomery's book uh, with her food aid, and that's really, you know, updating the science and really showing how many tactics and growing operations can be linked to nutrient density in the food. And then, you know, the medical community is linking that nutrient density to disease prevention. And it's it's exciting because um, as we gain more knowledge about how uh, nutrient nutrition density affects human health, it opens up the door for a, a kinder and saner entire food system. Um, do you agree with that? We should not be militarizing our food. And yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's really it. Um, you know, when we look at, uh, where we want scarcity in the world, it's, it's not around healthy food. And I think that's really, you know, when we talk to investors coming into regenerative ag spaces and we talk to industry folks and product people coming into this, we just have to be real careful that we are talking about the right values and we're talking about the right way to get there and that we're empowering the right people to get there because, uh, we, it's not an extractive mindset. We can't be commoditizing the things that keep us alive, even though we love to do it. Um, and that's really, uh, that's, 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 you know, the big revolution that we need in society. And it's going to take a mindset change to get us there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, maybe it's a mindset and a heart set change uh, or um, something that or maybe it's a remembrance, like the um, the cows in the field who know which the grains are. And I know I had someone had just ate something from my, I, I, have, I have these onions in the yard that I've had for over 20 years. And I gave it to someone. They're like, wow, did that taste so much better? And I, I know there's this beautiful phrase out there about, you know, a taste of a real tomato and how that can revolutionize the world. And, and how do we return to food that's, I mean, and that that is fed with that 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 deep health and nutrition. It, it, you're right. Um, it starts with the farmers and the ranchers. I really do believe that. Um, you know, to to be moving that direction. Um, there's a lot of debate about that. You know, is this a consumer choice problem or is this a production problem? You know, and I and it's probably too simplified to put it in one bucket or the other entirely. Um, but generally, you know, we, we got to believe that if we start creating healthier food as an industry. As an ethic, um, consumers are going to want that and have more appreciation for our industry overall. And, and uh, that's a big bet. You know, a lot of people like to take food for granted. We know that, especially in America. Uh, but, you know, we, we have an obligation. You know, I love Gabe Brown's quote when he was asked in front of a crowd a few years ago, why did you change your farm? And he said, well, do you have any kids? And, you know, it doesn't have to be more simpler than that answer overall. It's, you know, just thinking a little bit more broadly about the legacy we want to leave and, and overall the, the progress we want to make. And I think this is a bipartisan, universal issue is, uh, to, to ingest healthy food. It makes us feel great. Right. It can be a real point of unity um, among people. And um, But let's dispel some of the, the myths. Um, so, I mean, one myth out there is that you know, regenerative agriculture cannot feed the world. Regenerative agriculture cannot scale. How do you respond to that? There's some truth to the fact that regenerative agriculture can't scale. Uh, there's, so, you know, nature is only scalable to certain aspects. Um, that said, you can create more regenerative farms, right? So you might not be able to create one giant regenerative farm but you can create a lot of them working together. And that's what's going to feed the world. And I think when we talk about feeding the world, uh, we have the mindset of massive of Iowa, right? Like massive industrial, just uh, monoculture farms that go on for uh, hours and hours and hours out of our car window. Uh, but when you really look at the community models, they're truly feeding um, cities and, you know, towns and areas around the world in a healthy way. 
These are regenerative farms working together to create their own supply line into their community. There will always be a globalized part of it, but it shouldn't be the primary part. And I think that's what we, we have to untie a bit is how do we untie the large-scale industrial mindset. Uh, we don't want, you know, people to go out of business. We don't want people to starve. But we are going to have to redo the model to feed the world regeneratively. Yeah, and uh, let's let's explore that mindset a, a little bit more because um, I and and that's why you're you're doing this more this think tank, which isn't a training, but it's to have um, it's empowerment. So, what does that mean to um, to be empowered um, when there are so many you know dominant and often hidden mindsets out there? You know, it, it some it's a trust issue. It starts. You know, I I've, I've seen when I first started hearing regenerative uh, and I started attending events that were talking about it and meeting with people, there was only one group and that was farmers and ranchers in the room talking about this. Um, now we have big industry, you know, wanting to promising they want to put $1.3 trillion into the food supply to help change it. And I think if you talk to most farmers and ranchers, that is not something that excites them. They see people coming for their farms again. And so when we talk about empowering farmers and ranchers, we, we talk about putting them in the front of the room to teach. Uh, we shouldn't have scientists and bureaucrats making policies around food supply without farmers and ranchers in the room. Generally, there's one, right? There's a token farmer in the room, and then there's nine other people. And that's, you know, what we have to really um, work on. And we have to create the skill set that create zero deniability that they need to be the dominant force in the room. And so that's really what we want to do is we uh, find the people who want to speak on this. Uh, but this goes, you know, beyond just advocacy, this goes to talking to investors in a confident way, to talking to your bank in a confident way, to talking to your dad about why you need to change the farm in a confident way, and uh, creating a single message so that we aren't explaining regenerative agriculture a thousand different ways because that's, that's the experience I've seen in the conservation movement is, when we are mismatched in our vocabulary, our vision, and our goals, we really spin our wheels. We have about three minutes left in this segment, and I know uh, I've been hearing some really good things coming out of COP27 that globally uh, regenerative agriculture is really being seen as a um, as a solution to our climate crisis, as something important. But um, what what are your thoughts on, on COP23, 27? I appreciate the chance to, to talk about this. Um, you're right. It's both sides of the coin, right? We're creating uh, lots of discussion about this, and all of a sudden it's a topic, and, and I do uh, can't see anything wrong with that. Um, the challenge is we can't let the people in that room define the conversation and define what's happening, um, and, because that's, again, what to connect the dots. That's why, you know, how many times have you seen farmers and ranchers in front of the microphone at COP27? Not many, if any, right? And that's the challenge. We're talking about creating fundamental change around the world to how we, you know, treat our environment, and we're not allowing farmers and ranchers in the room. We have industry there. We have big banks there. We have advocacy groups there. We got ocean groups there. We got everybody there, but that group is still missing overall uh, in, in, in the quantity at that point. So I just want people to understand that, that the messaging going on there is important, but the real work on the ground, the real people making it happen, uh, are way ahead of the people who are in that room at COP27. Um, and, and they are the ones doing the work. And are, are you optimistic for the future? I wouldn't do this if I wasn't. I think I'd be crazy, right? If I really thought this was impossible, uh, then I would be the craziest person on the planet, I think. Um, but, no, I think I think uh, I like to quote Ronnie Cummings in that um, in this sentence, which is the revolution may not happen in our lifetime, but we're going to have fun getting it started. And I think that's really the ethic and the spirit that I take into this is it's got to happen and we're going to do as much as we can and, uh, you know, hand it off when it's time. Um, and so we're going to be talking uh, next with uh, Lydia, um, Lydia uh, Laser from um, also from Acres, and you have a big 2022 Eco Egg Conference coming up. So you want to briefly touch on that? Yeah, thanks. I would love to see everybody in Covington. Kentucky, excuse me, uh, December 5th or 8th. You can learn more at ecoag.acresusa.com. We've got the David Montgomery and Dick Lay, like we talked about, keynoting. We've got Rehan Oliver Hazlitt American talking about redefining the, 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 the idea of profit um, in our food supply. 
Uh, and then we have a lot of technical workshops around soil health, nutrient balancing, biology, weed uh, management, uh, uh, livestock, et cetera, et cetera. So if you haven't been to an native show before, you got to go. Um, and uh, talk a little bit about what um, you, you wanted to start with this trivia question about um, how World War II draft helped launch the regenerative movement. And so 70 years, 70 years, we've known that the soil minerals matter to our health. And now the um, academic um, are coming in and checking the math and saying, yep, we need mineral, minerals in the soil. But is it too late? I mean, have have we done so much damage to our soil that um, that it's going to take a lot to try to try to bring it back? Is there is there still, as you say, there's there's yes, we have hope, but um, but we also need a sense of urgency. Absolutely, and that I, I, it doesn't take long when you change your mindset and you change your practices and you start to let nature work, and that's the the confidence I have in this. Uh, Rick Clark, he's a large scale conventional farmer who will also be talking at a conference. He's a, excuse me, not a conventional farmer, but he's a regenerative farmer. He used to be a conventional farmer. He, uh, three years. That's what it took, uh, for him to truly change his systems over and see them starting to benefit him. And, uh, and now he is all in, uh, doing, uh, almost, he has no inputs, uh, uh, other than, uh, when he absolutely has to. And he's growing thousands of acres. And so, uh, it really does start with the mindset. And there's people out there that know how to do this now. And so that's the other confidence that I have is, what will accelerate this is information sharing and confidence. And I think the more people see this happening and the more people see the benefits and the science and all these pieces starting to fit together, um, are going to start this, this ball rolling just a little bit faster. And that's what we, we to your point, uh, we can't keep going the same speed we used to. Yeah, we got to go faster, go faster. So thank you so much, Ryan Stolbog with um, Acres USA and also um, uh, thinkregeneration.com. Uh, appreciate your time. We'll be taking a break and we'll be right back with Lydia. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us now is Lydia Lazar with Acres USA. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thanks so much, Laura. Glad to be here. Great. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, I've had a very um, complicated career. It's uh, spanned a lot of different domains, but um, I started out uh, studying hydrology and uh, working with farmers uh, on Long Island who were interested in moving away from planting potatoes only and moving towards market vegetables. So I started out in agriculture. I worked in the environmental space for a long time and subsequently became a lawyer and uh, became a law professor and did a lot of interesting things in that space, working uh, kind of citizen-to-citizen diplomacy around the world, and um, very pleased to be coming full circle back to my early passion uh, for food systems thinking and agriculture and working with Acres Now to help spread the word about this fantastic organization and the work that they've been doing uh, in farmer-to-farmer teaching and learning. So Acres USA, um, tell us a little a bit about Acres USA. Acres USA is an extraordinary American resource, actually. It's a 50-year-old publishing company that, as I say, the DNA of the company really is farmers sharing with other farmers what they've learned as they have tried to uh, farm in more traditional ways and resist conventional agricultural uh, strategies. So Acres was started by folks who were convinced that eco-agriculture, which they defined both ecologically and economically, uh, was the way to go, and to, that monoculture farming as being pushed by big companies was not the way to go. And they've, they've uh, you know, kept the torch burning for 50 years, and there's a community of thousands of farmers who relate to the Acres materials and contribute to those materials. And, um, you know, we publish a range of books and uh, everything from the how-to for the beginning farmer, how to think about farming at all, to how to transition from conventional uh, agriculture to more ecological and economical farming that reduces inputs and has strategies to really focus on soil health and moving away from that yield 
yield over everything kind of attitude that conventional farming has. So um, uh, about a month ago, I did a show with Elizabeth Santoris, and she pointed out uh-huh. that the word um, ecological and e- economical, that has the same root, the eco, which is home. And so she advocates uh-huh. like an eco-wise. So how do we be wise with the land and with each other? Um, and and so um, and, um, eco-agriculture, um, what, what does that mean, eco-agriculture? I think that the main thing to think about when we think about ecological and economical agriculture is that the farmer is focusing on the soil, the health of the soil of the land that they are farming. And they're not spending all their energy trying to increase yields per acre at all costs or at any cost. So what's ecological about it is that, excuse me, is that it's focused on increasing carbon in the soil and reducing practices that disrupt the soil, uh, you know, its fundamental formation. And and we want to do that because topsoil and soil generally, it's it's an extraordinary inheritance of the earth. And we've spent 50, 60, 70 years basically mining it, extracting the value from our soil and leaving the soil poorer for that. And the impacts on us are very profound because the food that is grown in soils that have been um, over overworked and um, overused and uh, contaminated with all sorts of um, external inputs like pesticides and uh, potassium and other nitrogen fertilizers, the impact is that our food is less nutritious. So for all sorts of reasons in terms of ensuring that we have a resilient and adequate food supply, a food system going forward, and ensuring that our food is actually nutritious for us, we need our producers to to focus on the health of the soil. Soil health is human health. Exactly, exactly. And as I think I mentioned to you, uh, or as you may have heard uh, before, um, Acres is holding, it's convening its annual conference next month in Covington, Kentucky, and one of our key speakers is Dr. Nasha Winters, and I don't know if you've interviewed her on your show, but she's someone who's really focused on how we can understand how to reduce the toxins in our environment and in our bodies, and really thinking about that connection between soil health and the gut biome and human health. And um, so talk more about the eco-agriculture um um, uh, event coming up. Thank you. The conference, we're very excited to convene again. It's an annual event. And essentially, the people that attend the conference range from longtime uh, organic farmers and farmers focused in the sustainable agriculture practices to newcomers to the field to people whose work is somewhat, let's say, ag adjacent. So we have some really great speakers who are going to, you know, run the range from uh, David Montgomery and Ann Bickley, who, whom you may have interviewed, who wrote yeah. the book What Your Food Ate. Um, and they're going to be speaking. They're keynote speakers. We have Marty Travis working with uh, who's written about his development of an ecosystem to help farmers connect directly with chefs in their area and in the bigger urban areas. And the farmers are in the, uh, outside those areas. We're going to have Gary Zimmer talking about transitioning and how farmers can think about the economic and the the practical aspects of transitioning out of conventional agriculture. Another really great speaker who I had the pleasure of meeting last year is Reginaldo Haslett Marroquin. And if your listeners aren't familiar with his work, I recommend uh, looking into his efforts to bring uh, a humane um, mass production of chickens to the Midwest. And so, yeah, Re- Reggie is from Northfield, Minnesota, and I've had him on a exactly. couple times. So he wrote this beautiful book called In Search of Green Man, which I absolutely love. Yes. Um, and yes. But he talks, he, he is, and he's now has changed positions. He's now with Tree Range Farms. So we are supposed to have him on shortly, too. So, oh, um, but, but the Tree Range Farms, this is, um, it's beautiful on so many levels, but on, on the on the economic level, so just on the basic mm. economic level, um, uh, you have the uh, trees, uh, you plant hazelnuts, and then you have chickens next to the hazelnuts. So the chickens are uh, fertilizing the hazelnut trees, 
<laughs> while the hazelnuts are providing cover for the chickens. So from an and from an economic viewpoint, uh, the farmer has two crops to sell. He's not just selling Absolutely. chickens; he has the uh, he also has the hazelnuts to sell and the hazelnuts oils. So that's from an economic, and then from an ecological lens, he's also helping. Uh, he's I had a conversation. He's actually like ripping up some of the old um, uh, riptides, so it's helping the water flow in the soil. Um, so I mean, and, and from the green man perspective, it's it's eco wisdom too. It's it's mm. honoring and 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 being part of 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 the earth. So, um, yeah, really excited to, um, really exciting. Yeah. To see the and, you work. Know, there's one other dimension, Laura, to Reggie's work and that, that I feel is very important for those of us who are very concerned about the economic reality facing so many people in this country. He's building humane livelihoods. The, the way that his businesses and the economic ecosystem that he's developing there, it, it's focused on decision make, collaborative decision making and, um, prop, like, literally sufficient livelihoods for the humans that are involved in everything from the raising of the chickens to the slaughtering to the transport to the marketing all of those aspects of the economic ecosystem he has also put a lot of care and attention to um yeah and that that is so important and i remember years ago david montgomery and i know we talked about you know what your food ate but he also was um at a nobel conference um uh here in minnesota on when they did a nobel conference on the soil and one of the things he presented there is acre per acre farmers can make more money farming in a way that helps the soil than that harms the soil and that helping people make money is one of the most powerful levers for a regenerative future. You said it perfectly, Laura, and that's really, that again, the DNA of the Acres USA brand and all of its materials is to help farmers reduce external inputs, which are expensive, and to make money because they have more control over um, their labor and their inputs and the, the things that they can control. Because, you know, farmers are at risk all the time. There are so many things that they can't control. The weather, for one, and the market, for another. So, yes, economics is at the core of the Acres DNA. Absolutely. That's our messaging. Um, and in this first segment of the, the show, um, uh, I played a clip from um, a film 70 years ago um, with Dr. Albright's work. And, um, mm. and and at that time, he was saying that soil health is human health. And mm-hmm. um, and so I'm going to post that entire 30-minute documentary. If anyone wants to look at it, it's going to be on the show notes for uh, Food Freedom Radio. So go to where you'd get Food Freedom Radio's podcast, which is on the M950 website, and it will be in the show notes there. Um, so talk a little bit about uh, Dr. Albright's work and how that connected with the founding of Acres? Oh, I'm not the right person oh. to answer that question. Okay, or just, I, I mean, apologize. This, no, 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 I'll, I'll do that. Um, but, but the idea of, um, so Acres was founded on this idea of, um, of healthy soil. Yes, and of farmers leading the way. I mean, I think that the, the crux of the matter is that Dr. Albrecht and um, the Walters family that he, he worked together with, they really respect the, the, the wisdom of the farmers themselves. And they have um, created a, a, a place and a space for for farmers to learn from each other. Um, almost all the books that are published by Acres uh, come out of that. Um, we find authors who've had good experiences or have learned from their experiences, whether they were good or bad, and they want to share those experiences and that wisdom. And uh, there are some perennial bestsellers and, then, of course, new books coming in. One of our new books that was just publishing and we'll have in time for our conference is, uh, oh, what's it called? Voices from the Field, I think. And uh, it's going to be a really fantastic um, with some of the voices of the of the great farmers that have, have connected with Acres over the years. Oh, I'm just looking for the name of the title exactly right. Yeah. So um, – yeah. So the 2022 Eco Egg um, Conference. Um, how? Um, so tell me again how people can get information and when it is, and some more of those details. Thank you, thank you, Laura. It's going to be in Covington, Kentucky, and it takes place uh, in the week of December 5th. Uh, we have Eco Egg University on the 5th. Actually, we have workshops on the 5th and 6th, and then the conference itself opens up. The trade show opens with the vendors and the speakers on Tuesday, December 6th, and um, people can find out uh, more about it by going to the acresusa.com website and clicking on events, 
and you'll find it. It's called EcoAg. You can also go directly to the EcoAg website, which is ecoag.acresusa.com. So uh, we have about three minutes left in the show. Um, Anything else you'd like to say? Well, you know, uh, Laura, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about Acres, and I'm really excited to step into my new role at Acres to help promote Acres to a larger audience. And um, if I think about everything I've done in my life to this point, like I said, I feel like I've come full circle, and now I bring uh, a, a new range of skills and to this environment, and I hope that I can help to make a difference. And I think all of us can find ways to make a difference to help promote with our food dollars, to help promote regenerative agriculture where we live. You know, the experts say, start where you are, and you can make a difference. And I I just really encourage everybody to think about that. And you don't have to do everything. You can just do one thing. That's what I often say. Just pick one thing, you know, whether it's organic eggs or I don't know what. You know, know, I'm surprised where my mind went, because it, it, uh, yep. uh, but my mind, I think the one thing that we can try to do, and it's probably the hardest thing, is to trust. Yeah, and, and I agree I, with you. And I was because I was trying to ask the question of, you know, are you optimistic about eco egg? Because I'm just like feeling like the whole world's going to go downhill, and it's like, oh, I mean, mm. what's going on with all the climate change? And it's so easy to be really fearful. And I think that mm. be compassionate and being aware of the crises and the multitude of crises. That's tough work. I mean, and, and I think, I th- and I think, I think to have full trust requires that awareness of of the the pain. But underneath that pain um, is is what springs up um, real action. I think. I, I don't know, but mm-hmm. but that's where well, I mean, I, I, yeah, yeah. I, you and I, you know, maybe we've had some similar experiences. My take on almost everything is: I'm an optimist. I'm a realist. I actually know a lot about all the bad stuff. But it doesn't stop me from getting up every day and saying, hey, you know what? What can I do that's good? How can I be part of solutions? You know, like they used to say, if you're not worried, you're not paying attention. It's like, okay, we can be worried. That's important. We have to be awake about the issues here. But but we also have to take steps to solve them in our life, in our lives, and with the people around us. Uh, because these are human problems, and only humans can solve them. And we have to be those humans. And and what a joyful response to all the response, uh, all the problems. Eco agriculture <laughs> is a joyful Absolutely. response to the multiple crises that we are facing. The I, divisions. Um, I mean, this eco agriculture um, uh, is is a place of unity of, of people of all yes. sorts of different viewpoints, um, and that's that's also been Acres' um, roots too. Yes. Yes, common ground. We can stay focused on the things that we know are important. And one thing we know for sure is that if our soil is destroyed, our society will go with it. So we have got to restore our soil. We have to regenerate our human relationships. And Reggie is very focused on that, the human. And we have to trust each other. I think you are 100% right, Laura. Yay. Well, I wouldn't say I'm 100% right, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, um, so thank you so much, Lydia um, Lazar with Acres USA. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, I'm Laura Headland, and uh, you've been listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Hey, Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund. Um, and joining us now is the founder of Azure Standard, David Seltzer. And um, again, I want to re- briefly repeat uh, how, how your company got started because it's so sweet. And, and I also want to ask how did you come up with the name Azure? Um, what, what does your name mean? Okay. Well, the uh, azure, uh, it's a color. It's a color of blue. Um, and, you know, especially in the early days when we first started, there was really not a good standard for organic food production. And there there's still issues with it, but I would say it has improved in the last 30 years. But we didn't really, there isn't a real standard on on what it meant. And, 
you know, even today there's this USDA standard, but there's also the, the underlying standard. Do we really care about it? When I was talking about independent businesses, these are people that really care. They're organic farmers that really care, and it's their passion. It's ours. But there are also organic farmers that just do it for the money and do not necessarily have the passion for it. So I think there's a there's a big difference there. So when we when we first started, you know, at first I called it Stelzer and Sons Industries, or uh, husbandry rather, Stelzer and Sons Husbandry. And I said, well, that's just, I need to come up with a real name now that we have this little catalog and all that stuff. So I was thinking, you know, what I really want to do is have my name portray that we're here to set a standard that's better than what you would get just out in the open marketplace. I'm going to get, we're going to do something better. So, you know, the color of blue has always been, you know, uh, associated with, you know, law and justice and right. And then a standard is, you know, we're just setting a standard. So basically the name, instead of saying, you know, blue standard or blue shield or something, um, we just said, okay, we'll call it the Azure standard, Azure standard, the color, the color blue that represents doing it right, just weights and measures, so to speak, but just um, quality here, yeah. and this is the Azure standard. So that's what we put into our name. I don't, I don't know if. Uh, no, that's great. And you're you're one of the uh, few, or one of only two independent food um, distributors now in the nation. Well, not. I mean, uh, that do natural in the natural food market. There are other small independent food companies that are very regional. Okay. So I, uh, I don't get me wrong. There, there are some regionals. There's a couple in L.A. There's a couple up in you know that serve the New York City area. There's one in Michigan. You know, there's a handful of of small regional ones. Would you prefer that there would be more competition for you? The more independent well, food food distributors, if they were independent, absolutely. I I think there should be. In fact, you know when I when I first realized what was happening, this is probably fifteen years ago now. Well, maybe not that long. Maybe more like eight or ten years ago. There was like maybe uh, eight or ten small natural food distributors left. And so I actually set up a conference call with uh, the heads of all these, all of those distributors. And uh, because I felt like that if we banded together and created like a little association and we could put together like a, uh, uh, a combined website so people from all over the nation could, um, you know, log in and, you know, depending on where they were, and we would split up the territory between us and make sure we covered it so that we weren't completely drowned out by, you know, the two big boys. Uh, and, you know, I got to know the guys, but, you know, they, everyone was, I think most of them were too far gone at that point. Um, so of the, all the, like I think six of them that we set up that, I set up that call with, there's only two of us left. So what I ended up doing is basically doing what I wanted to do with these other people is I covered the whole country, and I did it with a completely different concept. But, um, yeah, I felt like the right way to do it is to have a, you know, different regional, but large regional, you know, so we had the buying power to do that, and then we would do our own private label for the, and or do our own manufacturing, and we'd all carry that, you know, that one brand, because that's what we were getting slaughtered on, was trying to sell apples to apples with these large major corporate brands, and they gave the two big boys a way better price than they gave to us smaller companies. Yeah, so we're down to our last three minutes. I know there's so much more I want to get into, but the one thing that I've heard people describe the last few decades as, it's almost like it's been a race to the bottom. So you've got these large institutes and they're all trying to sell the food the cheapest they can and then a lot of people find food especially these days too expensive and i just feel like there's there's got to be an off-ramp to that race to the bottom scarcity t- 
type of food system, and it seems like that's what you've been working on for the last couple decades. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly where it is, and we want not to be the cheapest, but we want to give people the best value. So I don't want to sell anything that's of any kind of sub-quality. Now, if you go into the major companies that do this race to the bottom, it's all about giving poorer quality. They can, If they can get a little bit cheaper import from India or China or someplace else, they're the first in line to do it. They're, everything is just make it just a little bit cheaper. That is not what we do here. We try to give the family savings in doing bulk offerings. So first of all, we're trying to cut out as many, um, shall we say, commissions as we possibly can. We go farm direct or manufacture plant direct almost exclusively. So we're cutting out all the broker commissions and stuff. I shouldn't say all. There are still a few that we have to do. But for the most part, we're getting that cut out. So we're able to decrease the cost a little bit to the customer with that. Then the brand cost, the more things that we can put in our own brand, we're able to cut that out. You realize most brands, they don't make their own product. There's a handful that do, but most don't. They're just branding companies. So if you were to buy you know, a particular brand of product, they don't make it. They they have it white labeled, and they just are the marketing company. So, so I'm no, I'm, I'm, I'm no. You and I can talk for a long time. Down to the last minute, I want to sure make sure you get a time to say your website, and I also want to make sure that I include this one principle that you guys seek to emulate the principle of how nature is created, operating under the the, the principles of nature. So, the website and one final word on that. Absolutely, yeah. We set up we set up the website so anyone who would like to be interested in uh, Azure, it's azurestandard.com. That's a z u r e s t a n d a r d dot com. Um, you can get on there if you want to look for a drop uh, close to you. Down in the bottom of the first page, there's a little brown bar, and in kind of in the middle under Join is Find a Drop. Click on that. It'll pop up a map. Yeah. It shows you all the different drop points. And, well, you know, I if you thank look you at Twin so City. much. I thank you so much, David Seltzer, a founder of Azure Standard. And thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio.